You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thanks be to the Lord. My bad, I did it. We're thankful, (laughs) Father, for your word. We are thankful that you have given us your word Help us to understand it. Help us to know it. Help us to seek you through it. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might get great glory and honor by us sitting under your word to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us illumination, that we might see, believe, and understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Several folks that I haven't met, I think, so if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service is over. Oh yeah, Rachel and Aaron, this is a torch week. Uh, three weeks ago, we started this back up. So if you are a fourth through sixth grader and would like to uh, hang out with Rachel and Aaron and talk about life together and talk about the last two or three weeks of sermons together, uh, you can follow them out. Aaron and Rachel, maybe you're going to hang out with my kids and that's it. There's others coming. All right, there are other coming, others coming. You can just Pied Piper your way on out with them. Uh, if you are new joining us this Sunday, we are uh, now in our final week of a rare topical series. We have been spending three weeks thinking about race and justice. Uh, we wanted to think through these things clearly with you all. This is a contentious conversation swirling all around us. So we wanted to take some time to think about these things. Next week, we'll be right back to the book of Acts. But uh, we, two weeks ago, thought through that all humans are created in God's image, which means that every human on earth demands equal dignity, and that every human on earth must also come to equal repentance, turning to Christ, who is the true and clearer image of God. And then last week, we began to think about issues of justice and righteousness, that the justice of God, his righteousness, moving through his people, confronts individual sin and selfishness in others, but primarily in our own hearts, as well as the justice and righteousness of God confronting structural systems that oppress people and or groups of people. So now what? The sin and suffering of the world can be overwhelming. We might come out of here after this service tonight and after thinking about these things the last three weeks with renewed activism, even committing ourselves toward perhaps starting nonprofits or volunteering at nonprofits to alleviate or reform all kinds of injustices that people are grieved by. We might be renewed or come out of here with renewed activism to confront modern slavery and sexual exploitation, over-incarceration and the judicial system, poverty and homelessness, health, disease and medical care, water projects and feeding programs, 
immigration reform and refugee settlement, education reform, climate change, domestic abuse, child abuse, predatory lending and financial exploitation, and on and on and on. Like even just thinking through that list that I just named off just gets my head swirling. That, that's not, those are global problems, but those are problems all felt here in Albuquerque. Last week we read from Isaiah 1 that God's people are to seek justice and correct oppression. This is one example of many references in the Bible, certainly in the prophets of God imploring, not just imploring, but demanding, commanding his people to be people of justice, to move toward societal justice. So what does all of this mean for us as individuals and as a church? Uh, In 2011, uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert wrote this book called What is the Mission of the Church? Uh, I read this book around the time that it came out about a decade ago, and I went back to it last week. Uh, If you were running around in evangelical circles a decade ago, uh, you might remember things like Coney and the Invisible Children and Tom's and sustainable resources and microfinancing. All of these things were and are incredible things for Christians to be thinking about. But this is when, about this time, the phrase social justice was beginning to really take root in our vernacular and in our, in our conversations. But like George Yancey's book from 2006 that I quoted from quite a bit last week, I really appreciated that this book is 10 years old. Some of its references are pointed to time and space, but I think this book really holds up because this book, like George Yancey's, isn't necessarily speaking to and pointing towards uh, specific time and space issues, but rather timeless and biblical principles. Uh, I'm going to be referring to it a lot tonight. This is going to go back on the mobile bookshelf afterwards if one of you want to grab it, or if one of you just want to race up here and take it from me, you can. Uh, But... Uh, I'll also include this on a reading list that we're going to get out to you. We haven't talked about how we're going to do that. A blog post or an email or something, we're going to get that to you as well this week. But this is going to need some explanation, but near the end of their book, uh, DeYoung and Gilbert say this, in so many ways, the social justice discussion would be less controversial and more profitable if we stopped talking about justice and started talking about love. Now, these are two different things, justice and love, but I really appreciate and agree with so much of what they are saying and their understanding of justice as love, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So tonight, we're going to try to arrive at some conclusions over these past three weeks and make clear applications for us, but I want to do so by thinking about all of this under two headings, that of loving the world as individuals, what we do individually, and then loving the world collectively as a church, loving the world as individuals and as a church. So first of all, loving the world as individuals. Uh, So much has been written over the past decade or two about the word shalom, about the flourishing life, not just peace, but Uh, the flourishing life that God has created humanity to enjoy in his presence. Now, just imagine the peace, the love, the contentment that Adam and Eve experienced in God's presence in the garden. The good life, we might say, that we as humans quickly ruined. 
But then God recreated this place of his presence to dwell with his people in the traveling tabernacle and then the more semi-permanent temple that his people might dwell with him and experience shalom, human flourishing. But like the garden, his people rejected God all throughout their history until the God-man himself finally came to physically dwell with his people with humanity, as humanity. John tells us that in John 1, that Jesus literally tabernacled. He dwelled with his people. And the story of the Gospels is that of God's presence, a hotspot of holiness and love, of shalom and human flourishing, just moving about all over Palestine. In his life and death and resurrection, Jesus the true son of God, the true Israel in obedience and unbroken shalom. He acts in righteousness and justice toward all humanity around him. He willingly becomes a substitute for those who had previously rejected him and to welcome enemies now as sons and daughters through his sonship. And by their being united to him, they, then his people, they become bricks of his temple. Now they themselves, little mobile hotspots of holiness and love. So what are God's people, what are Jesus's bricks supposed to do? How are they supposed to live? We could assign every noble and good character quality of God and then translate that onto his people. But for the sake of our sermon here, we're going to focus on two umbrella categories for what and how we as individuals ought to live, ought to reflect Christ. So two little subpoints here, uh, that God's people are to be just and impartial, and then, secondly, God's people are to be merciful and sacrificial. So first, and remember, right now we're mostly thinking about in, as, us as individual people. We, as God's people, are to be just and impartial. As we considered last week, God tells Israel in Isaiah 1 to seek justice and correct oppression. Notably, we saw they are to do this, Israel is to do this, with the widow and the orphan. Widows and the orphans certainly remain vulnerable today, but in ancient cultures, these were people who were the most vulnerable. No CYFD, no adoption agencies, no social security, no other social nets. If you didn't have a family to care for you, then the rest of your life was that of uncertainty and that of perhaps imminent danger. This is why for characters like Ruth in the Old Testament, it was so necessary for her to remarry. Why a character like Boaz is so righteous to care for her as a widow, to provide belonging, to provide for Ruth security and peace. But here in Isaiah 1, Israel is comfortable in their religious worship while not caring for the vulnerable. But we should actually keep reading where we left off last week. Israel is condemned in Isaiah 1 not for perhaps what we would expect, not necessarily for their passive ignoring of the weak and the vulnerable, but rather they are explicitly condemned for their active exploitation and oppression of the weak and the vulnerable. So what was the injustice? Jerusalem, which was once a faithful 
city full of justice in verse 21 of Isaiah 1. Now in verse 23, God says through Isaiah, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. Everyone in Jerusalem loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. The leaders are taking bribes. They are siding with the rich instead of siding with the vulnerable, of allowing the the cries of the vulnerable to get to their ears, which then completely cancels out their seemingly religious worship. There is no heart for God, and there is no heart for their neighbor. In other words, as DeYoung and Gilbert say, the injustice was not that there were poor people in society. God's people were guilty of injustice because they were defrauding the weak and helpless in order to line their own pockets. There are many other places like this in the Old Testament, certainly in the prophets, but similarly in Amos 5, a book and a chapter made commonplace by Martin Luther King Jr., Israel must let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Throughout Amos, it is clear that God does indeed care for the, the poor, the vulnerable. The poor are actually the most vulnerable, the most likely to be on the receiving end of injustice. I think we all intuitively or anecdotally or even historically know that to be true. Like money talks. Money buys the best lawyers, Money buys the unjust judges. And so Amos condemns the wealthy who are selling the poor into slavery for their very minimal debts. Amos condemns officials who are accepting bribes, arbitrary and excessive taxation on the poor, and so on. And in this context, Dr. King was absolutely right to apply the injustices and unrepresented exploitation of many black Americans by quoting Amos 5. And so these are but two examples of many, especially through the prophets, where God's people are commanded, not encouraged, but commanded to pursue justice. But doing justice and righteousness in context means that God's people must not cheat, must not swindle, rob, murder, accept bribes, defraud, hold back on agreed-upon wages. And so we should actually be careful to apply what God is really concerned about. Remember what we talked about last week, that we should be careful and rational to truly execute justice. To put it bluntly, DeYoung and Gilbert say justice as a biblical category is not synonymous with anything and everything that we feel would be good for the world. That's important. We need to consider deeply and be confronted, certainly with the other reality that we'll get to in just a minute, that God's people must be merciful and sacrificial people, but at its very basest definition, seeking justice as Christians, pursuing justice as the Bible presents it, is, might I say, merely being honest, being impartial. The ancient world and the economy of the Bible is actually very dissimilar from a modern American economy. Now, don't hear me wrong. I I think there are certainly still economic injustices and exploitation that still happens today in 
an American present economy. But, like, just think about today's American economy. The working poor pay no or next to no taxes to our state and federal governments while receiving many governmental benefits. And that's not like, I'm not complaining about that. That's actually really good. Escaping from cycles of poverty is difficult, if not impossible, for millions of Americans. I would absolutely commend Barbara Ehrenreich's first-person reflection called Nickel and Dimed, when she worked as a restaurant server, a motel house cleaner, a hourly worker at Walmart. These are not what she's thinking about and talking about, like theoretical economics of lazy people, but the lives and well-beings of many hard-working Americans. But today's American economy, even with its problems and shortcomings, is a far cry from an ancient Near Eastern economy where the working poor were not just not taxed or even equally taxed, but the working poor in an ancient Near Eastern economy were overly and unjustly taxed. And then not just not cared for, like our governments seek to do, often imperfectly, but the poor were then even further exploited because, well, what are they going to do about it? What's going to stop us, the big bad government and the rich, from just taking all of the poor's money and then further exploiting them? Nothing was given to the poor and everything was taken. Christians should not participate in this kind of injustice and partiality. The book of James is clear that showing partiality to the rich is sin. We might say that the kind of injustice that so many of the prophets are condemning is if like one of you who is very rich hired maybe one of you students, somebody who's working a part-time job, an hourly wage, to do a job at your house. One of you rich guys uh, hired this student to do a job over the summer and you agreed upon that at the end of the summer and at the end of this job being completed that you would pay them $5,000. At the end of the summer, the, you, the rich guy, you instead of paying the agreed upon wage of $5,000, you instead write a check for $1,000 instead. And the two of you start to argue back and forth about this. Both of you come to the elders to help mediate What's going on here? The pastors, the elders, might be tempted knowing that the wealthy guy probably gives more to the church than the part-time worker who's a student, laden with student debt. Might be tempted knowing that the wealthy guy probably gives more to the church to just send you, the student, just away with a thousand bucks. Just be happy with what you got, man. But that would be dishonest. That would, be, that would be partial to the rich. It would be unjust. We individual Christians must be people of justice, of impartiality, honest in our dealings, a known reputation of integrity, of kindness. And of course, when times and circumstances demand them, we can follow in the footsteps of many of the prophets in speaking out against rulers and systems. But primarily, Being people of justice means people being people of honesty, of impartiality, of praying for our leaders and rulers that we Christians may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Timothy 2. 
But lest you hear everything that I've just said and conclude that then we should also not care about suffering as Christians. Second then, while we should be just and impartial, individual Christians should also be merciful and sacrificial. While understanding the prophets in context might help us focus a bit on what justice and injustice nearly always means, that absolutely then does not mean that we should be people who are honest but aloof, just but indifferent, impartial but uncaring. Within the law, God commanded individual workers not to just take and use all of their crops, all of their belongings, but to leave enough for the poor to gather and to eat. Places like Isaiah 58, where Israel should have shared bread with the hungry, clothed the naked, welcomed the homeless poor. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan confronts many of our sensibilities of ignoring and then walking by suffering. The Samaritan not only stops and cares for the beaten and naked traveler, but he then completely changes his plans, completely changes his personal finances to care for this man. Ethnic or religious differences must not be a barrier to the kind of sacrificial living that Jesus commends. Who is your neighbor? Any human being that is made in the image of God. And who is made in the image of God? All human beings. Because of God's generous grace, the merciful, the overflowing and abundant kindness of God that he pours out on his children, Christian, if you are a Christian, this means you. He has poured out generous, abundant, overflowing kindness on you, but not to end in you, not to just fill you up, but to move through you. And so just like we as a church in planning our own annual budgets, we build lines in our annual budget for benevolence, out of financial help for those in our community who are in need, as well as ongoing support of many Ministries who are doing full-time and frontline work with physical and material suffering. In the same way that we do that collectively as a church, we as individuals should likely also budget for benevolence. To plan for generosity when needs arise. We have friends who have aggressively paid off their entire mortgage so that they would then have what would otherwise be a monthly mortgage payment Now they would have a month or two or three mortgage payments just lying around ready to hand out when a need arises. To steward God's things in order to give away God's things. We Americans ongoingly need challenges, reminders, and perhaps even confrontation in our economic worldview that so so deceptively whispers in our ears that the meaning of life is the accumulation of stuff. The meaning of life is the utter elimination of any insecurity, the utter elimination of any discomfort or fear. The meaning of life is the promotion of me and of mine. We absolutely need to read books like Tim Keller's Generous Justice to remind ourselves that God desires to move through his people. That Jesus desires to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Titus 2, who Philippians 2, consider the needs of others to be more significant than their own. And if we are completely removed from encountering or knowing folks in the city who are experiencing material or financial poverty or insecurity or vulnerability, we should be putting ourselves in positions where we will. Our church staff and along with some of the Shine leadership have been working hard over the past few weeks and months to help get to you uh, some places around this neighborhood that you might perhaps begin to more regularly hang out, to buy your groceries, to get your gas, places where we might more regularly bump into and build relationships with the folks that we are coming alongside within our Shine relationship at Eugene Field Elementary. More on that in a minute. So not only budgeting money, but budgeting time, budgeting place toward the good of those in need following our Savior and becoming more and more conformed into his image, the true image of God, that we must become people individually of greater justice, of greater impartiality, of greater sacrifice and mercy. As Christ has loved us in compassion, we must love the world in compassion. But one more note here, be careful. Be careful that as God is making you more sacrificial and generous, that that doesn't turn into self-righteousness. That the so-called radical decisions that you have made, that that doesn't make you a whole lot different than the Pharisee in Luke 18. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all of I get, and I thank you, God, that I am not like the others. Applying this to this now, thank you, God, that I am not like those other stingy Christians. That then just becomes a hearty slap on the back of what we are doing instead of what Christ is doing. Don't presume to know or understand all of the ways that God might be transforming and sanctifying others, maybe differently than you, maybe more slowly than you. But now we've thought about loving the world as individuals. What about loving the world as a church? What must we do collectively? What should we do collectively? What is the mission of the church? Many people have tried to answer this question. Many people have come to different conclusions by latching on to a different verse or section of scripture. The passage that DeYoung and Gilbert have built upon, and they spend about 260 pages or so defending why, the passage that they have chosen is the passage that Liz read for us. Jesus' last words to the disciples that Matthew records. Matthew 28, the so-called Great Commission. Why he is sending his people into the world. What he is sending them to do and accomplish. Their marching orders for the rest of their lives. They are to go. Leave here. Leave Jerusalem, and as you do, make disciples wherever you go even to the ends of the earth. Make followers of Jesus of all peoples. How? Well, by baptizing them. And then by teaching them all that he has taught. This, this great commission of Matthew 28, should actually be the primary mission of all of us individually as Christians. But it must certainly be the primary mission collectively as a church. We exist together to know and worship God. 
men to act as 2 Corinthians 5, ministers of reconciliation between God and a dead and dying world. Like our Savior, we must love the world, showing and exemplifying compassion to the broken and vulnerable. But why? Why does Jesus in Matthew 5 say to shine like lights? Shine like lights, Jesus says, that they may see your good works and have their material needs temporarily met. Is that what he says? Does he say, shine like lights, that they may be pulled from vulnerability and they might experience flourishing life? No, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, shine like lights, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Books and books and books have been written about Jesus initiating his teaching and healing ministry in Luke 4 by Of all the places he could have chosen in the Old Testament, Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah 61. Jesus taking Isaiah's words upon himself, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus, it is often said, has apparently come with a preference toward the poor, and with a mission of bringing justice towards those who have been wrongfully imprisoned. But here's the thing. Jesus actually doesn't bring money to the poor. He proclaims good news. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Literally, the gospel. Jesus doesn't actually release captives from literal prisons. Pursuing judicial justice or something like that. But he proclaims liberty to captives of sin. His ministry is first and foremost that of proclamation. In Mark 14, he tells the disciples, you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Now, I realize the minefield that I'm walking through here, but the mission of the church is not social. It is primarily spiritual. Now, just because something is secondary doesn't mean that it is unimportant. But the mission of the church is that of making disciples. It is a spiritual mission. That's not to say that we should only concern ourselves with just getting people converted, that we should not care for image bearers as holistic human beings, caring that they and we would love God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's true, many individuals, many churches, many movements have been, quote, so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. But I fear that many more are so earthly-minded that they are of no heavenly good. The kingdom is not something that people build. The kingdom of God is not something that people create or to bring into fruition. Just think about the adjectives or the verbs that are given as the kingdom comes to earth. The kingdom is always something that people proclaim, that people bear witness to, that people enter, or more often that people inherit or even receive. The kingdom is not something that we bring about by relieving poverty. After all, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world 
to be lifted from poverty, but then to lose his soul. The kingdom is not something we build by reforming education or immigration or incarceration. Many of these systems could be arguably built on unjust or inhumane worldviews and should be spoken against and should be confronted. But as we considered in Acts 16, societal problems and injustices are not the gospel. We might say they are even, they are not even in the gospel, but they flow from the gospel. And indeed, it was individual Christians with a worldview of justice, a worldview of the image of God, like William Wilberforce, like Frederick Douglass, like Martin Luther King Jr., who spoke so persuasively and courageously against injustice. It was Christians and denominational structures who essentially invented the hospital structures and systems, certainly made them what we know them to be. It was Christians in the Roman Empire who began caring for orphans when the rest of the society ignored them. None of those things are historical exaggerations, and we Christians should individually be stirred toward greater levels of activism that we then feel the Lord stirring in our consciences, stirring in our hearts. But we should be careful. We should be careful that we properly understand the kingdom for what it is. Something that is breaking in, but never quite fully here. We should, as Christians, be moving against injustice, but with an understanding that the reality of this world, it will always be filled with brokenness, with evil, with injustice. I think I just need to quote at length here from DeYoung and Gilbert because I can't say it better. So pardon me, excuse me for this, it's so good. The final events the defeat of the nations arrayed against the Lord and his anointed, the defeat of Satan, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, it all happens when and only when King Jesus returns in glory and not before. That's important to remember for at least a couple of reasons. For one thing, it protects us from a wrong and ultimately discouraging optimism about just how good we should expect to be able to make this world. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But Paul is also equally clear that until that day, the creation remains subjected to futility and under its bondage to decay. We are afraid, the authors say, we are afraid that church leaders are doing their people a disservice by leading them to hope too much for the betterment of society in what Galatians 1 says, this present evil age, which still languishes in bondage and futility. Mission statements, a church mission statement, like transform the city and transform the world, or change the city and change the world, express a very commendable desire, but simply go too far beyond what the Bible tells us we should expect to see in the world during this age before Jesus returns. And the result, we fear, is that over the years, as cities don't become havens of virtue and of justice, as poverty persists, as inadequate housing remains, as governments remain susceptible to corruption, Christians will find themselves discouraged and possibly even questioning the goodness or the power of God, all because they have their hopes set too high 
and on the wrong things. That's really good. This is not, none of that, none of that is now an excuse to like throw our hands up, say that there's nothing we can do, an excuse for indifference, an excuse for complacency. No, godly living in our world consists of a broad range of activities, from simple and fair and honest dealings with people in daily life, to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources, to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, particular forms of violence and oppression, we should indeed fight against and resist evil in the world with like a square-shouldered realization that God does not expect us to be able to make the world perfect and that those evils will persist until our king comes. We ought to seek to confront justice while also being clear-minded about it. Because here's the thing, everything that, all the kinds of like nonprofit ministries that we could start that I mentioned at the beginning of this, not all of us in this room are passionate about the same kinds of things. Just because some members of this church do not care about the same things that you so passionately care about, or to the level that you care about, that does not mean that they are not themselves sacrificially moving against the vulnerable or confronting injustice in other areas. In fact, to paraphrase, paraphrase one pastor, if you need 50 hours in the week on top of your full-time 40-hour work week just to be a faithful Christian, then we have made too much about what it means to be a faithful Christian. We have likely made more of loving people who are in our immediate proximity, geographically, more likely relationally in your local church. We have added on top of just living out the so-called one another's of the New Testament, of just growing in the boring old fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have heaped upon ourself expectation to change and transform the entire city and the world, that it becomes exhausting, it becomes paralyzing, it becomes self-condemning. What a Christian can do is actually very different from what every Christian should do. Let's be very leery of legalism in these arenas. Because I'll be really honest with you, uh, last June and July, I was really overwhelmed. Like, I went to seminary to learn how to read, to learn how to study, to learn how to teach the Bible, to think about the deep things of God, to learn how to better lead people into following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, last spring and summer, we elders pretty quickly needed to become, like, looked to leaders in epidemiology and public health look to leaders with fully formed conclusions and then teaching on racial history and criminal justice, societal structures and economics, and just loads of other areas that at least I felt unbelievably under-equipped for, to be able to even process through, but then lead you all, lead us all in these things. And then I read perhaps the most freeing blog post that I've ever read, 
This blogger was riffing on the Twitter meme that when someone starts uh, tweeting angrily, just a big old tweet thread about the things that they're angry about and all of the solutions that they have for society, a funny response that some people might interject into that thread is, uh, sir, this is an Arby's. Like, you would never just unload on an Arby's cashier all of your anger and the solutions that you have come up with for society. And yet, very often, we all similarly scream into the wind on social media. Now, I think my 2020 summer anxiety was mostly self-imposed. You all were wonderful, and you were not coming to us as pastors uh, with anger and all of your now brilliant solutions for society. But this blog post that I read, this blogger pastor said that a pastor's response to these kinds of inclinations of when church members come saying, pastor, here's what we need to do. Pastor, here's the program that we need to start. The pastor's response should actually probably be similar to that absurdist meme. Not, uh, sir, this isn't Arby's, but brother, sister, this is a local church. This is a local church. We do not exist to end world hunger. We do not exist to form and implement federal immigration policy. We do not exist to reform judicial systems. I am so glad that you care about these issues. But we, institutionally as a church, collectively and corporately, exist to make disciples who will grow in their desire to then care very deeply about all of these things. And when I read that blog post, the weight of the world evaporated from my shoulders and were put very uh, strongly and squarely on the very capable shoulders of Jesus, who does know all of the problems and injustices of the world and can finally and fully end them. So like if you came to us this week after thinking through even some of the structural or societal injustices that you might see, some that we might have thought about last week, came to us and said, I think that we should really care more about single moms in this neighborhood. I would say, I agree. There is so much suffering and vulnerability just around a few blocks of us. So why don't you think through what it would look like to move towards some of these single moms in this neighborhood? Why don't you let me know if I, as one of your pastors, can help connect you with either other parachurch ministries who are doing this full-time, or I can connect you with other people in our church who share your same empathy and share your same energy? Let's see if I can help equip you, if I can help send you, doing the work of Ephesians 4 that Paul has given to pastors, that of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, because very often, if not most often, maybe not in this church, but certainly writ large, many folks come to church leadership saying, I think we should care more about single moms in our neighborhood or I think we should care more about judicial reform or homelessness or education or any number of things. And what they really mean is, so you, the pastors, should do something about it. 
or other people in the church should do something about it. The institutional church should do or say something about it. Where we just want to say, yes, I am so glad that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is moving in you, in your conscience, this kind of empathy and energy to be the kind of just and impartial and sacrificial and merciful kind of person that God has made you individually. Let's help you, send you. But what is the mission of our church? To make disciples. Students, followers of Jesus who live and love more like him. Now, sometimes as a church, we might corporately, in support of our mission to make disciples, move towards something like our Shine partnership with Eugene Field Elementary. We are absolutely not going to just like start littering the campus with gospel tracks. Hire a hot air balloon someday and just throw them all out over the campus, just to get everybody converted. We hope to genuinely be moving in sacrificial love and friendship toward image bearers of the living God. But we are not shy about our desire that years from now of having many folks, of having teachers, of administrators, and parents, and students, and former students coming to a place of knowing and following Jesus, of coming to a place of repentance, of having their sins forgiven, of walking in the actual shalom, the flourishing life of knowing God and walking amongst his people. Not just of having poverty temporarily or even long-term removed or relieved, of living life with us in mutual, beneficial, covenant relationship. Our church If our dreams come true, that this partnership actually builds this kind of friendship and and relational capital long-term, our church will be different in many ways five to ten years from now if all of this happens. We will be more diverse ethnically, socioeconomically, and we will be unexplainably better for it potential blind spots will be better confronted, addressed amongst us. Potential difficulties will be more wisely and empathetically moved toward. We will live together more as Albuquerque. This is our hope and prayer. That is, that is as we consider all of the principles and themes surrounding this, these last three weeks, as we keep thinking and reading and discussing and learning and being stretched, that we will embrace diversity that we will embrace oneness. Tony Evans titled one of his books, Embracing Oneness. It's a really wise title. He wisely says that oneness, that is unity amongst diversity, must be something to be embraced, not something to be pursued as an end in and of itself. Unity through diversity is an outcome of loving the world well. Loving the world individually, and as individual friendships of yours begin to be incorporated in our body, and then loving the world collectively, corporately. As several of us have been thinking about and praying about for a good while now, we want to be a church that does not communicate, intentionally or unintentionally, that you are not welcome here to anyone in this city. And I'll be honest, we have a lot of room to grow in that. 
both in leadership up front and then sitting in these pews? Are there any unspoken or implicit barriers that we are building or maintaining? Because to be able to embrace oneness, we need to make sure that we haven't got a bunch of hands or arms that are filled up with a bunch of stuff that then don't allow us to actually embrace others. So please pray for us. Keep praying for us, your pastors. Keep praying for us together as a church. Keep praying for your own heart. As one African-American pastor recently said, if it's not big enough to pray about, it's not big enough to worry about. If it's worth worrying about, it's worth praying about. And if it's prayed about, ain't no need in worrying about it. So let's pray about all of these things, individually, in the mornings, in the evenings, together in our gospel communities, together at our meetings like this. Let's keep praying that God would transform us into the image of Christ, that we might love the world around us well. In justice, in impartiality, in mercy, and in sacrifice. Let's pray now. Our Father, we are not equipped for these things. We are not able to do the kinds of things, to be the kinds of people that you actually want us to be. But with you, nothing is impossible. Through the Spirit of Christ, you are able to transform dead and selfish hearts into living and selfless ones. Into hearts and lives and minds that were formerly divided, now into one. You are able to transform people that then can love the world well. So help us, Father. Help us to have our eyes clearly fixed on our Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to pray urgently for the suffering around us. Help us to pray urgently for your return, Lord Jesus, when you will finally and fully make your kingdom on earth known as it is in heaven, that you will finally and fully transform uh, evil into good, that you will end and judge wickedness, that you will make injustice finally just, finally and forever. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq dot com.